As I indicated at the beginning, my natural inclination in the talk here uh, would be to dwell on the international scene, on uh, the Middle East, on Vietnam, on Africa. But instead of that, I'm going to emphasize from now on the uh, crisis of um, race in the United States. And I'm doing so quite uh, deliberately because I am firmly convinced that there is no problem uh, confronting this country which is more vital uh, to the future of the country, to the well-being of all the people of this uh, country, the, um, uh, the problem of the conflict between black and white. The um, uh, black American has always um, in this uh, been uh, deprived, uh, discriminated against, uh, refused and uh, rejected. Rejected in the sense of uh, never being accepted in the mainstream of American life, never having and never being accepted. Ralph J. Bunch was America's first black Nobel Peace Prize winner. He received the award for bringing peace to the Middle East. An internationalist at heart and known as the global hero of peace, here he is in 1969, arguing that America's strength was contingent upon its ability to address the issue of its time, racism. Now here we are, 51 years later, arguing the same thing. On this episode of What in the World, we unpack the history of racist practices embedded in U.S. foreign policy. We talk through present-day examples of those policies. But most importantly, we get to some solutions. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of What in the World. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to What in the World. I am your host, Boomi Akinisotu. We are the podcast that makes U.S. foreign policy understandable and relevant to your everyday life. We know that the world can be really crappy, y'all. And so we bring on amazing experts who can break it all down so that understanding it doesn't have to be. In case you've been living under a rock, the issue of race and police brutality has taken this country by storm yet again. And it has all been prompted by the murder of George Floyd. So you could also include Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and I could keep going on and on, unfortunately. But from protests to companies pledging that Black Lives Matter and the national outcry to finally reform the justice and policing system in this country, people have activated themselves in a new way. If you're not following the foreign policy space, it's been happening here. You may have seen the waves of think pieces and convenings and Zoom webinars and Twitter threads and statements about how national security and foreign policy needs to change. And certainly not in my lifetime have I seen this sort of collective acknowledgement and open dialogue about America's flawed democracy and its jacked up racial issues. So now that we are here staring at our wounds, what do we do? Do we buckle at the pressure or do we end up going higher in the words of my forever first lady, Michelle Obama? Dr. Mohammed Fraser Rahim and Camille Stewart, who is not new to the show, are on this episode to talk about where race and foreign policy clash. Where has it happened in our history? Where is it happening today? And what are some solutions for us to actually move forward? Camila Mohammed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. 
Dr. Mohamed Frazier, he's the executive director for North America of Quilliam International. It's the world's oldest counter-extremist organization. His specialty areas are transnational terrorist movements. They're quite scary, but you know, I'm glad you're there, um, Mohammed. So he's an expert on counterterrorism, um, Islamic intellectual history, Islam in America, to contemporary theology in the Muslim world and African affairs. He's advised the White House on these issues. You've seen him, MSN, CNN, BBC, NPR, he out there in these streets. And Mohammed is a bison. H U, you know. Repping hard for PWIs. Girl, me too. Rep that PWI girl. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Shoot, the PWIs gave us some love. It's okay. Uh, so Camille's an attorney. She works at Google. Um, and she was on the show talking about uh, the implications of cybersecurity on our elections. She's going to talk a little bit more about that today. Um, she also talks about perspectives on cybersecurity and foreign policy. So she's going to just walk us through why race and cyber go together um, and why we should be like scared out of our minds, but also empowered to really leverage this moment that we're in to make a difference um, and to make sure America doesn't fold. So no pressure here, but uh, y'all are phenomenal. Welcome. Um, so thankful we're, we're having the two of you. Um, each of you bring a different perspective to this conversation of race. I know Camille is the daughter of Jamaican immigrants. And Mohammed, who is a third generation Muslim American, he a black brother. But here's the interesting thing that we just learned about you, um, is that you come from the Gullah Geechee people, which a lot of people may not even have heard of up until this episode. <laughs> uh, and I come from, of course, a Nigerian family as well. Mohammed, for people who may, may not know about the Gullah Geechee, can you just like high level share where what that is about and sure. what those groups of people are about? Gullah is the culture, Geechee is the language. Imagine your brothers who came across the uh, across the pond uh, by force, and they had the ability to retain their traditions and cultures and their language into the new world. And so that corridor from North Carolina down to some parts of Florida, I was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina, we were able to keep intact our Africanisms. So our language, our food, I grew up on red rice. My mother makes sweetgrass baskets. My mother makes quilts. My mother taught me how to cook. My father's from New York, but his roots are from South Carolina. When I go down to the Caribbean, I interact with my brothers and sisters there. It's like I can, I can code switch. And then it's like being at home. And then when I'm in West Africa, and then they hear this name, Muhammad, and then they see phrase for him, like, oh, are you, where, where are you from in Africa? I'm like, like most African-Americans, we do not know. But I can talk about my history because of the Gullah Geechee connection. And so growing up, it was like, am I black enough because I'm not Christian? though I got plenty of Christian family members in, my, in the tribe. And then was I Muslim enough because I was an Arab or South Asian? And then I'm a brother who's authentic and comfortable and grew um, and have you know, seven generations who were educators. My uh, uncle was president of Morgan State University. So it was all these kind of like multiple hyphenation. I'm not special. There's many others like me. I just happen to, to, to you know... Uh, when, when you're a young person in Charleston, you're trying to find that balance 
And then as an adult, you're like, okay, that's the connection. So the Gullah Geechee tradition is those traditions and values passed along and they survived. I, I love that perspective. Um, and Camille, feel free to shine, uh, you know, share what you've said is so profound because it, it shows the diversity of the Black experience. Um, and as we talk about race, oftentimes the narrative is the African-American slave and like, that's it. Like there's no, there's no nuance to the very um, diverse levels of Blackness that can contribute to this conversation. And so Camille, um, as someone who is a daughter of Jamaican immigrants, how have you been looking at this situation that's been happening with the protests and all of the the racial unrest? Yeah, so I think it's an important point to highlight that, that the Black diaspora is so diverse, right? We've got folks who are new Americans who are from the continent or from the Caribbean, and they have a perspective. And those perspectives differ based on what country they came from in the continent, based on their exposure to African-American history. Same thing if they're from the Caribbean and what influences are there and what mixes are there. Like there will be Black mixing with Indian and, and so many different traditions that come together in that respect as well. There's the first generation American experience like mine, which is this interesting hybrid. And to Muhammad's earlier point of not being enough of anything, you know, a lot of us first generation Americans find ourselves in that place where you're not enough of, um, you're not enough African American and you're not enough of wherever you came from. And so, you know, growing up with a very strong cultural connection to Jamaica. So I grew up back and forth between Ohio and Jamaica. My social circle here being largely Jamaican, right? A Jamaican church and a, you know, Jamaican community organizations, et cetera. Uh, there are a lot of things about the traditional African-American experience that I don't even understand or aren't part of my family in the ways that, you know, a more traditional African-American family is, has experienced. I recognize that as I walk the streets and in for all intents and purposes, my kids, me, everyone is a part of that experience. So I make sure to educate myself and I encourage everyone else to do the same. The diversity of experiences across that diaspora lends itself to different perspectives on the movement, different perspectives that are brought to the work as it manifests itself, whether in national security, foreign policy or in domestic policy issues. And all are important and should be welcomed. And so I find myself in this interesting place where I can empathize with and understand, you know, first the, 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 um, the newly arrived or new American experience with strong ties elsewhere, but also the African-American experience. And I try to use that awareness and understanding to highlight for folks that you cannot put one frame on this discussion. Um, and that, you know, being ignorant to the fact that we all have different experiences means that we're not covering these issues appropriately. Yeah. And you've done something really great. Um, so you've co-founded an organization, which I think is doing just that, which is trying to change the frame, national security and foreign policy in terms of who gets to be considered an expert. Right. Um, and you guys and you are doing that tangibly um, through the Diversity National Security Network, which this show is now a part of. You all just had an amazing uh, Juneteenth uh, social media campaign highlighting black voices in national security. Tell us about that campaign and then tell us why that campaign is so important. So the Twitter campaign um, brought together prominent 
white allies across the national security landscape and paired them with talented black practitioners in this space to give them voice, to give them some more exposure, to give them visibility, to make meaningful connections between the people who are paired um, and to just kind of open the aperture, take advantage of this moment for people to recognize that there are people already playing in this space who are of color, black in particular, but more diverse that know these issues are, you know, practicing in these spaces and there are a wealth of resources. I think a lot of the narrative focus on, we, we don't have any people. We've got to build a pipeline. We've got to start with the really junior folks. Right. I mean, you've got three people mm-hmm. on this podcast alone who have been doing this work for over a decade, right? And mm-hmm. we can each mm-hmm. name 30 people at least <laughs> who are also doing this work and for significant periods of time. And so the problem is that there is not a platform for these folks. And in a space like national security and foreign policy, where platform matters, visibility matters, diversity and national security network has sought to fill that gap. Our space is amplification and creating platforms. So that started with the next gen NatSec list, where we will pull together talented folks across a number of diverse groups and highlight for you that they are doing well in this space, that they are achieving. If there are voices ready to contribute to your panels, to work at your organizations, et cetera. And this was another manifestation of that, another opportunity to give folks a voice and a platform to amplify the great work that they're already doing. I do want to highlight the collaboration. I'm super excited that this podcast has come on board to help with some comms. Like that's a new effort that will, you know, give voice to folks in another way. Right. We often are writing in the national security and foreign policy space, but to actually get to put your voice out into the world and articulate these issues for yourself, I think is a beautiful thing. And what I'm going to do, since we all got multiple jobs, hustles, et cetera, on top of our main thing, I, you know, I teach on faculty at the Citadel as well. And I'm teaching a course on African security in the fall. And best believe I'm going to be making sure that this is part of the uh, of listening. I, I like using technology and staying hip and not just the dusty, you know, text of, uh, of I'm looking at my books over here, of, you know, uh, what is this? Uh, general history of Africa. I remember reading it in college. People need that and they need these experiences. I'll be amplifying that. And I have to say, I'm proud being an ally and seeing women lead too. There's nothing wrong with a man allowing a woman, not allowing, following a woman and following women as they thrive and as they succeed. Listen, you about to get a second pot of jalef rice. Right, you know? <laughs> Listen, well, well, let's, let's jump into, into this conversation and take a look back at the intersection of race and foreign policy. So what does that actually mean? The last 20 years, post 9-11, We've seen some things happen to the Muslim community, to the Arabic community, certainly to the Black community. And foreign policy really hasn't picked up on it. We've, we've framed it in terms of combating violent extremism, combating terrorist organization, all kinds of things, but never a race issue. So, Mohammed, you're the, you're the historian. How, how could we look at the last 20 years in terms of race, right, particularly systemic racism um, when it comes to our foreign policy establishment? Where... where, where have there been some historic milestones or situations, policies that have really been a, a, a demonstration of just how racist 
the foreign policy establishment can be. Yeah, I mean, we got to go back to Reagan, and I, I, to, to, to the, <laughs> we haven't forgot about the the epidemic, the crack epidemic. I mean, we there's such a triangulation, like the trade of raw merchandise leaving Africa, going up to Sheffield, England, right, and then being shipped out to the new world and being dispersed in terms of human cargo also has a 21st century dynamic as well. I think, you know, the impact of our previous administrations have had devastating effects. Like you've probably seen Narcos on Netflix, right? I have. Yeah. And we all see it's like, wow, this is cool. This is the glorification and romanticization. I was like, this is awesome. But guess what? It was coming to the American street. And, and I, I just I've finished a renovation project here in Baltimore. And Baltimore is a perfect example of generations that have been addicted to heroin. And now you can hear the surveillance planes going over, right? And you see on every other corner, you see the uh, ring. Um, and this is, uh, Camille, you'll appreciate this, right? Where the interconnection of video surveillance. And so I just bring that up to say that, you know, there's a historical reference to this. And Black communities have been affected by COINTELPRO. They have been affected yes. by multiple issues of, of the state violence. So the question of George Floyd, like, okay, what comes next? Because on two conversations, you have legitimately police violence, brutality, and then we also have a separate issue of some serious Black-on-Black crime. They can be mutually exclusive. I think that when we talk about broader issues of race and we talk about police, you have to look at it in the context. I did an event on anti-Black racism in the Muslim community. I lived abroad in the Middle East, speak Arabic. I, you know, I, I come, I'm, I'm an African-American. So even when I studied in West Africa, I, my, my father said, Muhammad, go extract, as a young boy, extract the knowledge, but come back home and be yourself, right? And I say that because um, anti-Muslim bigotry, quote-unquote Islamophobia, to me is, is an issue, but it's less of an issue than the racialization of Islam, and, and, and internal issues of anti-Blackness within communities. And I think that that's a really important thing because you would easily be confused to think that there's this broader solidarity of the surveillance state and absolutely this critique of what governments uh, have overstepped. But I think one has to also do the historical proper memory of that Muslim exceptionalism should not be seen as affluent, well-to-do suburb mosques who've made it, just like you have Black elites who've made it, but that 45%, according to Pew and Gallup data, has Muslim Americans at or below the poverty line. Palestinian-Israeli issues isn't their top priority, or even Somalia. You know what their top priority is? COVID, police violence. But the fact that they care about COVID and healthcare and all those, that is actually also an American concern, right? It's not much different than Susie Q up in, you know, Arlington, right? Who also cares about childcare, healthcare, COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But because in this foreign policy space, we're so focused on Muslim, terrorist, Arab, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, we miss, we miss that, that very real experience that they're regular people in America who mm -hmm. are identify as Muslim, who are Muslim, and care about what's happening right here, right home, right at home. Um, and we can't treat them like a monolith. We can't be like, you're Arab, so you must care about terrorism, right? No, yeah. like, you probably very well care about gentrification in Baltimore. <laughs> my, my, my Gullah Geechee yeah. mother is making her quilts 
My mother, uh, my, my Gullah Geechee mother wears her turban, uh, wears her scarf like an African woman, regardless of religion or in the Caribbean. My, my, my African-American mm-hmm. mother from the South has concerns that are local, right? I care about foreign policy because that's professionally what I do. But those things aren't a universal uh, interest, I think, for all, all communities. And so I think that, you know, I, I just bring that nuance out because I think, unfortunately, nuance isn't unpacked enough. That's actually a fault of the foreign policy national security community is not connecting these issues for people in their everyday lives. We need to do a better job of that because it does affect your mom, my mom, all of us, right? Globalization and how the U.S. decides to engage with different countries directly affects us, but even more acutely or maybe more felt diaspora communities who still have ties in other places completely agree, but wanted to add that we also all need to do some work about localizing these issues because there is a definite local impact. Our voice is so needed in, we, to be at the table, right? It was, it was Ralph Bunch who, you know, who was mediating in the 40s um, and, and dealing with Israel. It was Ralph Bunch who got a Nobel Peace Prize to summarize, I quote, carefully chosen Negroes can be an effective force, um, particularly against what communism. And he said, why? Because they were able to essentially understand the quote unquote native population. I don't like using that term native, but but this idea of right of people of color being able to resonate with communities of the world and being able to do it in a way where it's the oh, they understand my experience and the plight. And the and I think that that's a really powerful thing when we talk about foreign policy or even being able to speak languages. I remember being in Senegal and uh you know, interacting with some senior folks there. And they were just like, what? How did you know our language? I was like, well, I, stu- I studied in West Africa, you know, and in and, and undergrad. And, and so um, I think we have to be part of those conversations. What you said is a great segue to how we make this issue of race and foreign policy real and connect it to our everyday um, life. So Camille, you're in the cyberspace. You'll appreciate this story. Mohammed, you've done international work. And so I'm sure you use this app as well. But WhatsApp, WhatsApp is like a cesspool of misinformation, lies, just straight up lies. We just gonna call it what it is. I personally have experienced situations with my family members. I'm sure we all get it. The, the 27 minute long videos about who knows what said by who, knows who and God knows where. These videos, this information, these memes, they 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 actually influence decisions of people. I'm just struck by how little has been done with WhatsApp to address what is a very, very dangerous um, tactic. I don't know who's behind it, but Camille, about misinformation campaigns. I, I talked about WhatsApp, but right here, at home, other people may have been um, watching on Twitter, DC Blackout, the hashtag DC Blackout. Um, can, can you talk about what happened and its connection to this discussion we're having right now about, you know, race and national security? Like what what happened with hashtag DC Blackout? Can we start with the, the WhatsApp first? I just want to, I mean, I just think it's a really illustrative point on, you know, the importance of having diverse perspectives at the table, right? Because I don't know how it was discovered, but how it was likely discovered was because someone of color, um, somebody with links or ties to another country or community said, oh, my family doesn't go to Twitter to look for their news. My family sends 
gifts and videos and these little like you know pictures with you know <laughs> words on it and that bible for them right they're like what likely happened there was somebody who recognized that data flows differently through communities of colors especially with immigrant roots and finally said oh shoot we should be doing something about this because we thought about it on facebook we thought about it on uh, Twitter, we're even thinking about it on Instagram, but WhatsApp is actually affecting how people are treating COVID-19, how people are voting, how people are looking at candidate information, how people are figuring out where they're polling, how people are thinking, particularly around international issues that might intersect with their lives. Like They are getting their data from WhatsApp in a way that you know, if they already don't trust what's on Facebook and they don't trust what's on Twitter, they might trust what's on WhatsApp because that came from my auntie. My auntie told me that Maggie cubes were poisoned by the Chinese and you right. can't oh. use Maggie Here's the other problem. Because you got it from this air quote authoritative source, your auntie, um, you're not going to check it, right? Because your auntie knows that Maggie cubes are obviously... I low-key have those Maggie cubes sitting in the in the cabinet right now. <laughs> not really like, sure I don't know. Not <laughs> and that's the problem. The nice thing is, is I started to like train my family, like, please at least ask me before you send this, this on to somebody else. But not everybody has that awareness. And so that's like a perfect example of why diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds is really important to all these issues. Okay, so for DC Blackout, there, someone started a set of tweets. There was a complete Twitter campaign, um, and they used the DC Blackout hashtag to promulgate misinformation, disinformation about the fact that DC was on fire. And it was designed to cause panic. It was designed to exacerbate tensions. It was designed to fuel distrust. And they didn't really care if people could gut check that pretty easily, right? People knew that they just were like, oh shoot, DC's on fire, let's retweet this. Or even if you're just saying like, is this true? But you're sharing that information, you might be somebody who's willing or able or apt to do a gut check on that information. But the next person who saw it on your Twitter line is not. So unless you're sharing it with a like, do not believe this, which eventually happened, um, it was spreading like wildfires. People were trying to figure out if it was true or not, or if people were just not even trying to figure out if it was true, just sharing the latest news of the day. And so that is also really illustrative of, you know, so two, two problems there. One, sharing things that we are not checking. And two, people trying to fill the information space, which is a huge problem, right? And something I'm very concerned about as we approach elections. We are in a space where COVID-19 has changed the dynamic of how we will vote in the next election. We will be using mail by vote. We might be using mobile apps. We might be using online voting. And maybe we will still go to polling locations as well. But this dynamic space, changing of dates, changing of all of our infrastructure to accommodate the season that we are in, means that we most likely won't have the results that night like we're used to. And people, sh we should be talking about that more as national security practitioners because people are going to panic. Because they're going to think something went wrong and somebody's going to try to fill that information space. <gasps> I wonder if the reason we don't have results is X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. All of those things are not things we should speculate on. All of those things will cloud the information space and somebody will cling to your, even if it is a carefully worded question, 
Um, but say, oh my gosh, it must be an attack. It must be, you know, the system failed. It must be Russia. It must be, and it is likely none of those things. It is likely a new system and people have to go count something afterwards, or they want to do an audit check to make sure that the number that popped up is the right number. And it is actually probably something that is designed to make it a, a more accurate count. Filling information space is actually one of the things that I am most concerned about because it will come from authoritative sources. It will come from the media speculating. It will come from our politicians speculating. It will come from leaders speculating. DC Blackout is a good illustration of how even just asking questions the wrong way and trying to fill the information space before there are facts can be detrimental. So like speaking of aunties, why are Black people the targets of these disinformation campaigns? And I say this because it it seems like it doesn't take much for a meme or GIF to completely turn a comment box into a war zone. And so I'm just wondering, I know this is not new, but why does it feel like it's just Black folks who are so easily falling prey to this type of misinformation? So, So let's be careful there. Black people are being used as a tool and as a target. And what I mean by that is, yes, they might be targeting Black folks and Black narratives to actually maybe radicalize, and Muhammad can talk more about that, or to manipulate narratives such that folks don't go vote or won't engage in the political process or whatever the desired end is. But they are also a strong tool to do that to other people, right? Like Amplifying a Black narrative, whether it is a popular one or a discrete one or something tangentially related to a Black narrative, is actually probably more polarizing to somebody on the far left or the far right than it is to the actual community whose narrative they are manipulating, right? The, the, a conversation about voter suppression in Georgia that pivots around the Black experience in that space, it might make some Black folks feel defeated and like they, they shouldn't go vote. But what's more likely to happen is folks on the left are like, this is why Black people are being held down and this and that, and we need to do this. And then people on the far right are like, no, we are racializing and politicizing something that has nothing to do with anything. We're just trying to control the voter. And there's a narrative to be had on both ends that pulls those groups further apart and politicize something that has is not political. So we have to be careful with how we categorize those things because quite frankly, um, the most effective thing is to actually target the folks on the far left and the far right and to further polarize the discourse and or just clutter the information space as we were talking about before. Well, that just blew my mind up because that is not how I saw it. I totally saw it as a direct target um, of the Black community or African-Americans or Africans. But I totally can see your point about the political target, right? Because that is the that is like the pillar of our democracy, right? Like our whole electoral system, we only have two parties. <laughs> and let us be clear, when Black folks are engaged, they are the one of the most educated on the issue voter bases. Now, there are segments of the population that aren't engaged and aren't voting, et cetera. But when they are, they are knowledgeable in the space, which is why this really isn't targeting them as much from a, you know, voter suppression, that kind of narrative. It's not targeting them as much as it is around the polarization. Uh, Mohammed, you talk about this issue and you've researched it extensively in your work about how 
um, Black Muslims are targeted by outside entities, uh, terrorist organizations, and I, I say put terrorists in quotes um, because that's what the foreign policy space uses. Um, but why Black Muslims or why disenfranchised groups in America? Why do they? Why are they targeted? I think building off what Camille said before with the with the whole Muslim item to it, I think foreign adversaries are like everything's fair game. And if you allow for the, the, the far left, the far right to do what they do, then it, it neutralizes itself and it works perfectly in their playbook. Americans, we have, we have to be more um, aware of the multiple, you know, it's like some people say, I can do two things or three things at once. Sometimes it seems as well, we can only do one thing at one time. And so the Chinese posture is that, we are a civilization that has been around for thousands of years. American uh, players who are dealing with IR postures, but we've been around for, we're 200 years, but we're the new kids on the block and we are the global superpower. And so the Russian posture is, hey, we've been doing intelligence for a long time and African-Americans and Africans are fair game. We're going to offer financial inducements. We're going to offer this playbook. We're going to use influence operations. We're going to do, we're going to use um, different means to actively target. And I think that once we see this as a broader strategic calculus, then it allows us to be able to respond better. And that's why our voices have to be there because we are very aware of these, of these realities, right? It's like game recognized game. Game recognizes game, right? Perfectly. Extremist groups as well, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. I mean, we have white supremacist groups that are recognizing that they have to be purposeful. Dylan Roof in my hometown of Charleston, South Carolina, has had a broader, has reimagined the white nationalist movement throughout the world. The New Zealand uh, uh, shooter in Christchurch has reimagined what it means to be a martyr for a white nationalist cause. You get my point. And so when we think about race, when we think about these movements, these groups have learned from one another. I don't care if you're an Islamist who take a twisted, narrow interpretation of Islam, whether you're a white supremacist, whether you're a black supremacist. We've seen black Hebrews, offshoot groups that carried out attack in Jersey City, in New Jersey, who carried an attack in New York. You, they're, they're a common threads, and they realize they're able to. And so these tensions of race, right, when you don't address these things, they fester. And that's why... I think we have to really address this head on, have a truth and reconciliation. You can't have freedom overseas and encourage that if you don't have freedom right at home. We identified that Russia was targeting African-American voices in the 2016 election and did what? Right? Like, where is the national strategy around making sure that that behavior does not happen again? We have strategies around disinformation and information operations, but what is the one that is targeting the most, the identified by the government, most effective campaign of targeting African Americans? That is why addressing systemic racism and race head on is so important because we leave ourselves vulnerable as a nation. Not only are we not even at least doing the band-aids on bullet holes of like trying to, you know, well, how do we mitigate these harmful narratives? We're not addressing the root cause. So we need to address the root cause. That's, that is it. That is what we need to do. We need to address race in this nation. But if we aren't even willing to have enough of the conversation to 
offer up mitigations to something we know is our greatest threat as a nation, we got a problem. Camille, that is the perfect setup for our conversation about solutions. So we've talked about the history. We've gone through present day examples of how racist foreign policies impact black and brown communities. Mohammed and Camille, what are your recommendations for how we move forward? I want folks to not be afraid to address race head on. As you can see, it is without addressing that issue, without having a lens towards it as you build mitigations, without you know having a lens towards race as you um, build out policy and strategy, we will forever be behind. Uh, without having diverse voices at the table, we will never innovate in the ways that we are capable of. We will never show up to the table um, as our best selves and be able to demand from people something that we are not willing to show them in our actions and in our own policies, et cetera. Um, you know, we have to understand that systemic racism cannot be dealt with in a vacuum. So to say that, oh, that's a domestic policy issue, I think they got it over there, you know, we don't need to deal with that in national security foreign policy. It's completely wrong, right? As, as technology promulgates all of our systems, you know, it can be weaponized um, as bias is built into not only technology, but our actual infrastructure and systems that can be weaponized. And that's what people are doing. That's what Russia, Iran, et cetera, are doing. They are weaponizing a flaw in our institutions and in our actual technical systems. The other thing is, you know, there are opportunities for each person in their work and in their um, in their engagement with their colleagues to elevate the voices of the people around them, right? Um, it doesn't take a Twitter campaign for you to share that your colleague wrote a great paper, for you to invite somebody to a panel with you, for you to do a, do Google, a Google search. search. Come pull up one of our lists, start there, and we'll help keep connecting you because they'll trust me, those lists are not exhaustive. There are so many people doing the work. Um, so, you know, open the aperture of who is at the table, of how you lift up your colleagues, of who you think of as leaders, um, and, and how you evaluate people's capability for leadership and how you evaluate their past experiences vis-a-vis -vis whatever the work is that you're trying to do, because there are some non-traditional experiences that could lend themselves a lot of perspective to the work that you're doing. Um, and ask questions like, don't. Don't be afraid to have a hard conversation. I want to add to that, though. Black folks, if somebody asks you a question, don't be out here snapping on people. <laughs> Look, white people, I feel like you also need to be ready for some people to experience anger. If you find someone who is angry, they probably have a right, like a reason and a right to be angry. <laughs> and see if you can wade through true. that anger or have the conversation with someone else. But don't let that be a deterrent because I know there will be people who are angry. You might be the last conversation in a long line of conversations where people came up them with stupid questions or were ignorant in some other way. And so maybe that was the wrong day or flat out, maybe it was the wrong person for you to have mm -hmm. that conversation with. But do not let that be a deterrent. Mohammed, what about you? I think this idea of purposely hiring people, purposely hiring people with the skills who are people of color, there's no, you can't get around this. And um, not just the, the token, let me fill them in for the, no disrespect, for the administrative support and role, but for the leadership role and doing it in a way where um, if I come, I'm going to bring three or four other people with me because that, that's part of the package. You know, I've, I've had, I had a book came out in January. In the past week, I've had so many, I've had people slide in my, my LinkedIn and they've asked 
we didn't know your work. Can we, uh, I didn't know you came up with this book. Can we have you involved? We're hiring for this position and, you know, your skills. And I can't believe I didn't know who you were before, but, but you, but I'm one degree removed from the same person who doesn't necessarily have the, even the same skills that I have, or actually they, they're the intern. So it's just, I think, but now I'm, I'm no longer the junior analyst, right? I, I paid my dues. I've done that. I, you know, I respect them, but also recognize too that my intellectual knowledge is also draining to help put you on. They need to go ahead and do the reading themselves too. Yeah. That they have to do the work because they take time and energy from productivity for us to talk about self-care, self-love, for us to be productive. And I think that that's where I would encourage others to not ask me to be part of some group. You know, picking somebody's brain to figure out how to navigate this moment in time is also something you should pay them for. You have no idea how many organizations are reaching out to be like, how do we be thoughtful in this? Which I appreciate and I want you to be thoughtful in this. But that is time that, to your point, I could be using for self-care or anything else and just somebody who pays me. It is another form of oppression to take my intellect without compensation and with no offer of such. And then also recognize the difference between a place where you need someone with a lived experience that's relevant and someone who is an actual DNI expert. There are those. It is not for me to facilitate a diversity and inclusion conversation. That is a whole discipline. And you should call somebody who studies said discipline. That's not what I do. I'm just black. Okay. This has been an amazing conversation. We've got to wrap it up. Um, theme of the show is Is America Dead? So I'm going to ask the two of you to just quickly give your, your response. Uh, Camille, we'll start with you. Um, in light of where we are uh, in this country with COVID and certainly protests, um, and from your perspective as someone who's a cyber expert, is America dead? Not yet. But I think, depending on how you look at it, it dying to the the views and the ignorance to issues of race that we had before would be a blessing. And I hope that that's what we're moving to. Um, but I do hope we die to some of our ignorance. Um, no, I don't think it's dead. I think, you know, like we as human beings, we have seasons in life. Some are start off life in the fall, spring, summer, uh, winter. I think America is in a um, maybe a fall season right now or dead of winter. But, you know, uh, after if you've lived in Chicago, the dead of winter um, is cold. Or if you live in the tundra, it's super cold and you think no life will come about. And then things slowly start thawing out. But it takes time. And when it's cold and it's hard, it is hard. But when that thaw slowly takes place, then you can see new life. And I think that America is in a in a in a in a state right now of a winter, and as it it's not here there yet, but when it becomes slowly deciding to move into a spring season, then we will see new life blossom and germinate, which will then be a model for the world. Mohammed, thank you for that analogy. I lived in Chicago for many years, survived many winters, and you're absolutely right. The summertime was just much more special once you got through it, and Hopefully that's what happens to this country is that we get through where we are and we come out stronger, we come out smarter, we come out much more understanding of one another. So thank you, Mohammed. How can people find your work? At M. Fraser Rahim, at M. F. R. A. S. E. R. R. A. H. I. M. 
I'm on the gram and all that stuff. Just do a Google and you'll see a lot out there. There's some new books and new efforts coming my way soon. So Awesome. Well, buy his books, y'all. If you bought mm-hmm. it, buy his books. <laughs> Camille, where can people find you and your work on cyber? Yes. Um, but first, I do encourage you to buy his books and support him. I cite Muhammad in everything that I do. So um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can follow me on IG and Twitter at Camille ESQ and at my website, CamilleStewart.com. Uh, if you want to listen to other episodes of What in the World, you can go to whatinthewordpodcast.com and we are wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't be shy. Share the link with your friends. You will sound good to all of them when you guys reconvene in person and you're talking about what just happened the last six months out of the year. But um, so, Mohammed, you get the honors this time because Camille did it when she was on our show. We try to end or on a high note with music. So, what is a song that has been keeping you in a good mood when you're just like, it's cold in this tundra, man? It's cold. Cranium, my way. Nice choice, Muhammad. Thank you so much for that. To the both of you again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for all that you are doing, both seen and unseen, to advance not just not just your own work, but to really help strengthen the field of foreign policy and national security. So this has been another episode of What in the World. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Ooh, ooh, all my candy